The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. We have come with grateful hearts this morning, O oh God. We are thankful for this weekend, this holiday that we've been able to enjoy as a nation, a time to reflect upon the wonderful blessing that you have given to us, the privilege of living in a land where there's freedom, a land where we have the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth and to do so with freedom. We thank you for those who many years ago risked life and risked everything that they owned, uh, Lord, to, uh, to secure such freedoms for us who live many years down the road even from them, who still enjoy the fruit of of their courage and of their sacrifice. And we're thankful for our nation. We're thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy. And even as we give thanks for such things, Lord, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray uh, for godliness in our nation. We pray, Lord, for the people of this country. We pray that they would, in their hearts, turn toward you. That there would be across the land a, a real sense in the hearts of men and women That without the great God of this universe, without our creator, without the God who's granted us every blessing, we're hopeless and we're helpless. We pray, Lord, that you would turn the hearts of our nation back toward you. We pray for our president. We pray for the vice president, for our congressmen and senators and judges who have been appointed in this land. Lord, we pray that you would turn their hearts toward you. Lord, we see trends in our nation that trouble us as believers. We see trends toward ungodliness. We see trends toward worldliness. We see trends toward uh, toward a rejection of you. We pray, God, that by your sovereign hand you would turn the nation and its leaders back toward you. For you are our hope. And even as we give thanks, Lord, for our country and we pray for it, we recognize that our ultimate loyalty is not to this nation, not to this land, For we're citizens of a different place by the blood of Jesus who saved us. The moment that we confessed our sin and embraced you as Lord and Savior, Lord Jesus, you transformed us from the kingdom of darkness and you made us citizens of a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever. And that's where our ultimate loyalty lies. And we understand in that kingdom it's not bound by geography or by, uh, by lines that men draw. In that kingdom there are people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation who have equal access to the throne of God. And we understand, Lord, that when our time on this earth is done, that's the kingdom to which we will spend eternity. And in that kingdom, we will see you face to face. We will worship you without the stain of sin upon our lives. We'll worship you with people from all around the globe, from every generation. And we'll experience true freedom in your very presence. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would make us loyal to that kingdom, that that kingdom would be the determining factor in how we think every day and what choices we make every day. And this morning, as we come to worship you, we come with that sort of a kingdom mindset. We come before you, our king, seeking to hear from you as you speak to us through your word. 
We give thanks for our pastor who's prepared this morning to deliver your word to us. As we look to John chapter 15 this morning, we pray, O oh God, that by your spirit you'd open our eyes to see it, to understand it, and that you would apply it to our hearts, that we might leave here changed. That's your work for us this morning, and so we pray for there might be a reality. We pray for it for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So if you would, turn in your Bible, please, to, or turn on your Bible to John chapter 15. Who would have thought 40 years ago when I had my first, over 40 years ago when I had my first church staff position, that you could actually, that the th- thought that you could turn on your Bible You could hold a phone in your hand. and So those things, that technology is progressing. But isn't it great that we have the timeless truths of Scripture written thousands of years ago that still perfectly in line with our lives today and applicable for us today? Whether you're reading that Scripture on a screen or... On pages. Uh, Today we have the last of the I am statements out of John. It's fitting that this one would be the last as well. Uh, We've been through all of them. Um, I in John 6, I am the bread of life. And then I am the light of the world. I am the door in John 10. I am the good shepherd in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11. I am the way and the truth and the life in John 14. And possibly the most shocking one of all, I am the true vine that we'll look at today. These are wonderful statements. Several of them. Let me see. I am the door. Maybe I'm the good shepherd. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So three, three of them at least deal with <clears throat> our entrance into God's kingdom, our entrance into the life that we have in Christ. But this one we look at today, the last one there, I'm the true vine. It's a different statement. And it's fitting because he it ta- it, 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 it talks about our abiding in Christ, our divinely appointed everyday experience that we have as a believer, our union with Christ, the title of this message. So it's fitting that it's last because it addresses the Christian life that the Lord would have us live uh, when he's gone. Uh, It has to do with the kind of daily experience that we have in him, the experience that characterizes us as believers after we've come to faith in Christ. Plus, this is the only one that has a a, a, a second clause to it, a a second point to it, where he says in uh, verse 1, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish And it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And that's the word of God. And we won't do all that. (laughs) There's so much. Jesus is facing one of the most terrible scenes in all of human history. He's about to be murdered at the hands of man. All that he was about to face is all heavy on his mind, a burden on his mind, weighing on his mind. Other things are weighing on his mind. The reaction of his disciples, his family, their fate after all this comes down. He came to save them all, and a few of them, just a very few, are responding in a genuine way. He's even facing the collapse of his inner circle a little bit. Tragically, they're falling away. One disciple is already in the process of betraying him. It could be that as they are now taking this walk toward the Mount of Olives, toward the Garden of Gethsemane, wherever they are at this point uh, in that movement. It could be Judas at this very moment is speaking to those who will come and arrest Jesus. The leader of the disciples. We'll call Peter the leader of the disciples because he's got the biggest mouth, right? Okay. About to deny Jesus three times, just in a few hours. The other disciples are to flee and desert him. Pastor Greg said last week on his wonderful message on the cross, John was the only one left there standing at the cross. And then there was that world of of people that he did preach to for uh, three years or more and They were rejecting him. And the religious leaders who professed to know and live for God, 
they'd walking away. They rejected him. Then there were all the non-religious people, all the nuns. We call them nuns today, who had no attachment to God and professed no attachment to God. They were a burden on his mind and heart. And so as they walk, maybe they've stopped and sat somewhere. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. And that's all we'll look at today. We'll look at the three characters here. We'll look at the vine and the vine dresser and the branch. We'll deal next week with what it, what, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What, it, what does it mean to be in Christ? What, it, what does it mean to bear fruit? Those are the things we'll talk about next week. But just these three today. What does this tell us about the vine, first of all? You may remember at the end of chapter, um, the very last verse of chapter 14, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He's talking with them in the upper room. And we call this the upper room discourse. We call 15, 16, and 17 the upper room discourse, although they're not in the upper room probably anymore. And then he says, rise, let us go from here. Remember that? So he says, rise, let us go from here. And apparently we find what he says in chapter 15 was spoken to his disciples as they left the upper room and as they made their way to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives. And there's a lot of speculation as to why he would choose this illustration or this metaphor, um, the vine, uh, at such a time as this. What prompted him to consider the vine. Well, it could be that as they're walking along, he sees vine. It could be walking down a row of uh, in a vineyard, for all I know. That could be uh, the illustration he uses. Or it could be from the, at the temple, there was this famous or, ornamented gate on the temple. And we knew that they had to walk by the temple to get to the Mount of Olives. And on this ornamented Gate was this this vine um, described by Josephus, the first century historian, who says that one of the chief ornaments was a golden vine with a cluster as large as a man. Some people think he got it simply by just sharing the Last Supper. With his disciples, the fruit of the vine. He had just instituted where the, the men would drink the fruit of the vine that represented his blood poured out for many. And these are all just guesses. There's a more historical reason, but the connection with the vine could be any of those things plus other things. But he's building on the emphasis what took place in chapter 14 where he was dealing with his, his uh, disciples' anxiety and their fear. Let not your hearts be troubled. The fear of his death and departure and, and, the, and the 
coming of his Holy Spirit. He announces there at the end of 14. And, and so <clears throat> in the Holy Spirit, they would they would be able to abide in Christ. He, 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 he details that even more in chapter 15 as the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. So he comes up with this new metaphor. I am the true vine. This tells us a lot about Jesus. It tells us about his deity. It tells us about the life of Jesus. It tells us about the sufficiency of Jesus. It tells us about the exclusiveness of Jesus. And it tells us about the affection or the love of Jesus. All this in just a few words. John has already settled most of these issues as we preach through John. He's declared his deity, and we'll whip through some passages here in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the very, the very first verse of the gospel, he settles the issue of Jesus' deity. Verse 18 of that chapter, no one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 10:33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so lo- with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then that famous saying, Thomas in John chapter 20, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my what? God. So John has already settled his deity. We know that these I am statements that we looked at earlier were statements that reflect also the deity of Jesus Christ. The one who's made those statements, when he says I am, he's looking back at the Old Testament. He's looking back when, at the time of Exodus when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he told him to go to Egypt and communicate with his people and talk to Pharaoh and com- uh, command Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses a bit confused. Who shall I say has sent me? And God says through the burning bush, say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So here we have those seven I am statements in John. The passages I've already read to you from John. Christ's use of this title and John's use of these verses and these passages declares Jesus Christ as God. By all these images. He shows he's all that men and women need. He's the sole way to come to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Muhammad is not the way to God. The teachings of Buddha is not the way to God. Vishnu is not, won't take you to God. The Virgin Mary won't even get you to God. There's only one way to God, that's the Son. Because He is God. It's His claim of deity. If it's not true, if His claim is not true, we can stop here and go home and have another hot dog. None of this matters if that claim is not true. He's also the life. We also see in this verse the life of Jesus. The divine is life-giving. The divine is fruit-producing. The divine is in himself, and he gives life. This life is the knowledge of God. This life is a right relationship with God. We see that in passages also. He has life. He gives life to everybody who comes to him. John 1, chapter 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. 6.33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives what? Life to the world. Verse 35 of chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. John chapter 6, 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then in verse uh, 54, we have this, uh, this picture of saving faith. And it's a metaphorical picture of saving faith. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. See the life of Jesus in the vine. Verse 57 of chapter 6. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Life! We see the life of Jesus in the vine. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. 11.25, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We see the life of Jesus in this picture of the vine. Of course, there's some things that immediately... uh, appear to us here. We wouldn't have to have anything but this one verse to know a few things about this passage. We wouldn't even need this. We would only need this one verse to understand a few things about this passage, and I hope we do. We could even reason from this truth that the life is in the vine... That there is no spiritual fruit that comes from human achievement. You understand that? That you don't get spiritual fruit from human achievement. If 
the life is in the vine, there's no fruit apart from the vine. If he's the vine and we're the branches who are united and connected to the vine, anyone who knows anything about viticulture, which I know nothing about viticulture, that the fruit does not come from the grapes themselves. The grapes don't come from the grapes. The fruit doesn't come from the branch. The fruit comes from the life that's in the vine. So if he's the vine, we're the branches. We know right away that any spiritual good or any spiritual fruit does not come from our own human achievement. It comes from being in him. We'll talk about more about that next week. He's the faithful Israelite. He's the one true seed. That's why Paul talks about in Galatians when he talks about the seed of Abraham. And we're only the seed ourselves because we're connected to the vine. We're connected to Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. To be united to him is to be united with the very source of life itself. I am the, the way, the truth, the life. Fruit does not come from your achievement. Fruit does not come from your hard work. Fruit does not come from your ingenuity. It comes from what Jesus Christ has achieved on the cross. The vine is life-giving. We also see in the vine the sufficiency of Jesus. Once you're attached to the vine, you don't need to look anywhere else. John's also dealt with this already in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't need any other fullness. He has it all. All grace, all truth comes from Him. Verse 16 of chapter 1. For from His fullness we have received, we have all received grace upon grace. And when we abide in Him and He in us and His Word abides in us, we see from John chapter 6, 35, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's sufficient. You'll never hunger and never thirst. If you take of the bread of life. John seven thirty seven. on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's sufficient. You don't drink anywhere else. You don't eat anything else. You take of the bread of life. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He's sufficient. Enter by him, he will be saved. All sufficient. 
That same chapter, John 10:28. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's all sufficient. Do you need this vine? Do you need this vine in your marriage? The all-sufficient vine? Those of you parenting children... Do you need this vine, all-sufficient vine? Those of you who go to work every day and you try to stand firm in your job, do you need this all-sufficient vine in your life? All-sufficient to take care of every challenge you could ever face. We also see the exclusiveness of Jesus the true vine. Well, let me remind you that the figure of the vine is not something new. Here's why I'm saying he calls himself the true vine. Or you could translate that word genuine, why he calls himself the genuine vine. He's not introducing a sub us to anything new uh, in Scripture. This is not even new biblical teaching. You read the Old Testament, you see more than once that you notice the figure of the vine. And most of the time in the great passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, you see the figure of the vine relates to Israel. Most important being Psalm 80. That brings the theme of the vine and the Son of Man together in Psalm 80, verse 7 and 8. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. See, he's the vine dresser. And later in that chapter, verses 14 through 17, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jeremiah talked about this vine, 2.21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And there's a passage in Ezekiel 15 that I think is important. It's rather long. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? 
The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it and hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less... When the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I'll set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate. Because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. And Hosea tells us in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxurious vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. That's sin, by the way. It doesn't. At face value, it doesn't say it. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. That sounds like America. The United States of America. As, as the more affluent we become, the more sinful we become. The more the country improved, depends on how you look at it, he improved his sinfulness, his idolatry. So the figure of the vine is well known. That's why this early on I said this is the most shocking of all. I am the true vine because the disciples all knew what vine represented. It's a natural thought following all those passages in the Old Testament that it was the nation Israel. And God chose the nation, chose the figure of the vine to represent the nation Israel. And almost in every case I mention, Israel is chastised for being an unfaithful vine. So the figure of the vine is suggestive of, of Israel, but it's also suggestive of Israelites and the unfaithfulness of the nation. The vine's failure to produce good fruit is emphasized in some of these passages. The threat of God's judgment on the nation. It's always in a negative sense that this degenerate vine had failed to accomplish God's purpose. Did not bear fruit. Jesus, in contrast is all that God intended His vine to be. And if the branch fails to produce fruit, it's worthless. If a vine fails to produce fruit, it's worthless. So it's not Israel anymore. Jesus says, I am the genuine vine. I'm the true vine. There is one faithful vine. And I am the one faithful vine, he says. Particularly as they're there, they, they go by the temple and they, 
They see that Israel is represented by that vine on the gates that Josephus mentioned. Even a coin during the Maccabean period, there's a coin with the image of a vine on it to represent Israel. And so all the disciples knew what Jesus was talking about. So he had to say, I'm the true vine. I'm the genuine vine. It's not Israel anymore. Not the covenant people of God anymore. The true vine then is not the apostate people, but Jesus himself and those who are in him are the branches. He'd come to save them all and not one is standing with him in his most in his most needful hour, that nation that he came to deliver from their unfaithfulness. They aren't standing there. He's the true vine. John has already addressed this matter throughout John. Jesus is the one and uh, the only true vine. That's the exclusiveness of Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. He says in John 10, 9, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusiveness of Jesus. There's no other door. There's no other good shepherd. There's no other way. There's no other light of the world. There's no other truth. There's no other life. I'm it. True, authentic, genuine, real. All the others are false. And what is false? Well, any religion without Christ. What is false? Those who believe they're a branch because they attend church without knowing Christ? Those who don't practice obedience to Christ? That's what's false. To borrow Michael Horton's book title, that's a Christless Christianity. He's the one true vine, the exclusive one and only vine, one and only Savior. And then lastly, we see the affection of Christ in these few words. He's intimately involved in the lives of his people at the deepest level. We're the branches growing out of Christ. And he says in verse Two, any branch in me. That's the intimacy. Verse four, abide in me and I in you. Verse five, whoever abides in me and I in him. Verse six, anyone who does not abide in me is thrown away and the branches are gathered, thrown into fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's the intimacy, the affection we have from Christ. 
What other vines have you attached yourself to? Think about that. Go home and think about it. What other vines have you tried to attach yourself to that you might receive love and affection? You might have some security. You attach yourself to the vine of money. You attach yourself to the vine of property. You attach yourself to the vine of family. What have you attached yourself to, to, to make you feel good? You attach yourself to the vine of family or sex or relationships. Just the list goes on. Figure out what vines you've attached yourself to so that you might receive some, or you think you might receive some vitality. What's it tell us about the vine? It tells us a lot about the vine, doesn't it? What's it tell us? What does this passage tell us about the vine dresser? Like it says, the first um, I am with a second clause. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, prunes. And so the, the, the son's role is, is central in all of these verses. But the, the, the father's role, the vine dresser's role, is not just background. He trims and he prunes. Now, some people are going to take this and argue deity. Well, the vine, there's not any connection between the vine dresser and the vine except the work that he does. But Jesus is not trying to make that point. As we talked about early on, the very first point, the deity of Jesus Christ, John has already settled throughout the gospel. So that's not the argument here. That's not even the point of this passage. There's no attempt to compare them. The Father has a different role in his union with believers, and he has a different role in his union with his Son. John has settled that, so, uh, and we've seen those passages. But the Old Testament Im- imagery you, we saw back in Psalm 80 is that he is the vine dresser. He does care for the vine. He does cultivate the vine. He planted the vine. Psalm 80, verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. He's the gardener. Your Bible might say gardener. He's the farmer. The, an, an, a better English translation would be farmer, but we don't normally use that word for a vine dresser. It's hard not to see the relationship between the vine and the gardener as a reflection of the subordination of the son to the, to the father. He's talked about that already. We see that way back in John chapter 5, the subordination of Jesus to his father, John chapter 5, verses 18 and 20. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, the religious leaders, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, Don Carson has a good point about this. He suggests that the picture of the son, who is an apprentice in the father's trade, is only doing what the father is doing. 
And he relates this to the fact that Jesus grew up in a, in a carpenter shop. His father was a carpenter. He's learning the trade of carpentry from Joseph until he became known as the carpenter from Nazareth. It might be better to say that that view of sonship is what Jesus has assumed in these words. I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Most sons of that day grew up in a trade. Profession that was served by their fathers. So the principal idea of 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the son could do nothing of his own accord. Related to verse 20, making himself I mean, verse 18, making himself equal with God might be that Jesus does not mean that he has interdependence, independence from the father. You could translate the son can do nothing by himself. Better, the son can do nothing of his own initiative. They are in complete union. They do everything together. Though he's the unique son of God, he can be called God. He can take on divine titles we see in Scripture. He can take on divine rights we see in Scripture. Yet, at the same time, he's submissive to the Father. Not only does the son always do what the father pleases, but he can only do what he sees his father doing. The complete union of the father and the son. And the objective of the vine dresser is maximum production. That just hurts talking about it, doesn't it? Because you know how he gets maximum production? Pruning. Just the thought of pruning hurts. It's essential for increased production, we see in verse 2. It's accomplished through the application of the word. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. God is the vine dresser. He's the one who carefully planted the vine and he waters and feeds the vine. He's the one who cares for and looks after the vine and the branches. He's the one who prunes and purges, cleans and protects the branches. And Jesus is saying here that my father takes the same careful and tender interest in you that a vine dresser would take in a, in, a, in, a, in a vine, in a vineyard. Watching over its health, watching over its fruitfulness, watching over its fertility. Think not for a moment when you're going through it. You believers, this is just for you believers. Think not for a moment when you're going through a trial that God does not care for you because that's why you're going through a trial to produce more fruit. And so this sentence just throws light on all the afflictions, all the trials of God's people. They're all a part of this Mysterious process. 
by which God purifies and sanctifies his people. J.C. Ryle looked back in Scripture and said, All the most eminent saints in every age have been men of sorrows and often pruned. You read about God's people in Scripture. The vine dresser lovingly cares for the vine. Not only that, he perfectly cares for the vine. You know, I might, if, if I'm trimming a vine at home, um, not a grapevine, but those other vines I've got, um, you know, I'm trimming those things. I don't really think about where's the right place. <laughs> I just take that thing and cut them. But when God is pruning you, he prunes you perfectly. He cuts in exactly the right place. And that's our hope and our security. And what does this tell us about the branch? Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That's really the theme of these 11 verses. The theme is not how to grow a vineyard. The theme of these verses is clearly fruit bearing. It's not vine planting. It's fruit bearing. And the reason I say this is because the word fruit occurs six times in these first 11 verses. It only occurs two other times in the entire Gospel of John. So he's talking about Christian bearing spiritual fruit. Against the background, this imagery of a grapevine. Next week we'll deal with that theme of fruit bearing even more. But there's a lot of confusion, a lot of disagreement About this, and there may be even more confusion and disagreement about this verse after we talk this morning. But who gets life from the vine? Who doesn't get life from the vine? That's where the confusion and disagreement comes from. Who are these people? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, who are those people? Are they lost people? Well, no, they're branches connected to Jesus. Some way, they're connected to Jesus. So they're not lost people. Are they believers who lose their salvation? Are they true believers who've lost their salvation? No, John's, are, are, John's already settled that. John 10:28 I give I give them eternal life they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand If they're believers who don't bear fruit they're thrown away then there's a sense that they you might be able to lose your salvation many people claim that in this verse That can't be the case since the gospel is just full of affirmation that your salvation is totally dependent on the work of Christ Not your work. And the saddest thing about it, if it is true, those people would claim 
that these people are saved and they've lost their salvation, this passage of Scripture gives them no hope whatsoever that they can get back to God. They're thrown away. How sad. And although I don't think this is the point of the passage, it's a metaphor and you can't really press every single point. But I believe these are false professors. Judas had just left them. And I think the third verse actually affirms this. Judas has just left them. These are people who are close to Christ in a sense. These are people who claim Christianity. These are people who are active in the church. Maybe they like the idea of Christianity. Maybe they like the, at least the good words of Jesus. And they're actively involved in the church and they're close, but they're false professors. John Calvin says, many are supposed to be in the vine, not supposed to be in the vine. Many are supposed, many consider themselves to be in the vine, according to man's opinion, who actually have no root in the vine. And we've already seen in the Gospel of John, not everybody who are in the covenant are necessarily of the covenant. There are those who are and have been with Christ who are never in Christ. That's what he talks about these next, the rest of these 11 verses. Abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in them. They were never Christians. Never believers, really. They're to be taken away. They thought they were, possibly. At least they liked Christianity. But they're to be taken away. And the proof that what this is, what he's talking about here, I do believe, is in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That's in the context of fruitful and unfruitful branches. And he says... You are clean. He's talking to the eleven now. You are clean. That same statement was made back in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus said to them, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And he's talking about Judas here. Judas is gone, and he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You are the true branches. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. The one who is completely clean, the one who is saved, the one who is truly abiding in me, the true branches are clean. But not every one of you, he said in chapter 13. And then Judas left, and now he said, all of you are clean. At that moment, not everybody was 
clean, but now Judas is gone and everyone is clean. The unfruitful branch that would be cut off is gone. He's talking about people who belong in an outward way, but not in a way that we would say is true, not in a way that we would say is genuine, not in a way that would that would describe you as having a living faith in him. They are the unfruitful branches and they'll be cut off. And Judas represents that class of people. Never true believers. And there are many passages in the New Testament that make the same point. Fruitfulness is a mark of the true spiritual life. You cannot be a believer and not bear fruit. Now, there are levels of it. There are some believers that produce just itty bitty little teeny weeny grapes. But they're bearing fruit. And there are those who bear bunches and bunches and bunches. Fruitfulness is a mark of spiritual life. Fruitfulness is a mark of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Real union Communion with Christ. But Jesus said earlier, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. That's fruit bearing. Seems to be what he's saying here. I think, too, that's what John was talking about when he said in his first letter, 1 John 2:19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become become plain that they all are not of us. Even in the parable of the sower and in um, Luke chapter eight, verse 13, and the ones, you know, the seed, the parable of the sower, the seed that fell on the rock, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, pruning, they fall away. Fruitful vines will be pruned to bear more fruit. Unfruitful vines will be cut off and destroyed. And how do you become fruitful? We'll talk about that next week. Remaining in the Lord, remaining in his words, trusting in him, believing what he has done for you is absolutely true. Communing with him in prayer. He talks about that here. Living in dependence upon Jesus Christ. So the role of the vine dresser is twofold and it deals with the branches. In reverse order, he prunes. No fruit-bearing branch is exempt from God's pruning. And the Father's purpose in that is loving. My son, the writer of Hebrews says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful what? Fruit of righteousness. Twofold, he prunes and he cuts off the branch that bears no fruit. Gets rid of the dead wood so that the living fruit, and the dead wood can bring disease and and the dead wood can bring rot. Gets rid of that so that the living fruit bearing branches can can. First of all, be distinguished from them clearly. And then there's just more room for growth. The purpose of this verse is to show us that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is the mark of true Christianity. The alternative? Dead wood. Fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. And if you're dead wood on the vine, listen to me. If you're dead wood on the vine, then you're simply lost. Don't wait for him to cut you out. You might lose all hope. There's no other possibility. And so run to Christ today. Cling to Christ, the true vine, the genuine vine today. Receive life from Christ, the true vine today. May his life flow in you and through you to give you everlasting life. That union between the vine and the branch, that's the closest union you can Actually, conceive of, I think. It's the whole secret of the branch's life. It's the whole secret of the branch's strength. It's the whole secret of the branch's vigor. It's the whole secret of the branch's strength. It's the whole secret of the branch's fruitfulness. Separate from the vine, it has no life on its own. And that union between Christ and believers is just as close, just as real. J.C. Ryle says, They are what they are, and feel what they feel, and do what they do, because they draw out of Jesus a continual supply of grace, help, and ability. Joined to the Lord by faith, United in mysterious union with him by the Spirit, they stand and walk and continue and run the Christian race. But every jot of good about them is drawn from their spiritual head, Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. Let's pray. We'll sing a hymn in a moment called Jesus I Come and... 
you have questions about this message, you realize you're just dead wood hanging on the vine. Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. Go back there and ask questions and let them pray with you. Turn to Jesus today. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We thank you, Father, for your your word. We pray, Father, that you might draw us ever closer to yourself, that the vitality that comes from living life in the vine, connected to the vine, might make us a greater church and a greater people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.